Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Lori Weyburn, co-founder and president of Pacific Forest Trust. In this episode, we discuss Lori's journey from the Bay Area in California to Africa and back to the West Coast. Now, one thing we don't fully discuss is how Lori was quite ill as a child. And by the time she entered middle school, she had spent nearly half her childhood in the hospital or sick at home. But what's clear to me in this conversation is Lori's motivation to be present, to be alive, and to appreciate all the beauty that surrounds us. And a lot of that comes from her childhood. It was a really formative part of her experiences, how she's motivated today, her persistence, and overall her personality. I really enjoyed this conversation in part because I learned so much about something that I take for granted, and it's the beautiful forests surrounding me in the Pacific Northwest, the water sources, the wildlife habitat. Lori has been integral in forest and conservation innovation. Her team at Pacific Forest Trust have created and advanced strategies that really have become the standard in forestry management. We talk a little bit about a beautiful book by Richard Powers called The Overstory. And I didn't know this before, but there's several layers in a forest. And the overstory is the uppermost layer of foliage that forms kind of like a canopy, this layer of protection. And it reminds me a lot of Lori's work in offering active protection to something so beautiful that we very much need to preserve. Please enjoy this conversation with the inspiring Lori Weyburn. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the show. Very nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a thrill to be on. And I'd like to thank Tom Butcher, the wonderful Tom Butcher at Benek, for introducing us a while ago and inviting me to see the amazing documentary that we'll talk about. But thank you to Tom for that kind introduction. I think Tom's fan club is probably enough to circle the earth. So you and I are members of the same club. Exactly. Now, before we talk about your incredible work at Pacific Forest Trust, I always like to rewind people's story all the way back and talk about their childhood. And so if you don't mind sharing with our listeners where you grew up. I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up in the deep fog of the eastern boundary current that comes up here and feeds the Bay and Golden Gate. The rare unicorn that's actually born and raised in the Bay Area in San Francisco proper. In San Francisco proper, Children's Hospital. And what was your childhood like? I always like to know about siblings, parents, just the upbringing and see how that shapes your thinking. I'm the youngest of four children. I had a lovely childhood, I must say. I mean, I know that memories make things better in general, but I did have a wonderful childhood roaming around what was then the wilds of Land's End, a kind of abandoned area, so full of mystery and exploration. And it was an area at that point where my folks would let me out and I'd take the dog and I'd come back a few hours later. And we also spent a lot of time exploring 
the Western United States. My parents were very involved in conservation, both of them. My father as more of a leader, leader in the front of the pack. My mother more as a leader in the back of the pack. She was a wonderful writer. And he was known as the 100 million acre man who led the formation of about 100 million acres of national parks and protected areas in the United States. So childhood was an interesting combination of having people over for dinner who might be a senator and could drive legislation federally to activists from the local Sierra Club chapter that wanted to help work on the formation of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, to seeing a forest of knees that I was walking around serving hors d'oeuvres to at different receptions and parties. So it was a very lovely time and place in which to grow up, even though there was a lot of controversy, obviously, happening in the world at that time, too. I bet. Incredible. I mean, I would love to be a fly on the wall during the dinner conversations that your family would have growing up. Now, did you, growing up, hear it and understand the magnitude of what they were trying to do? Or were you just like, oh, my parents are doing parenting things and you didn't really absorb it as much? Or it sounds like you did just given your career now, but I'm curious in hindsight what your reflections are. I think we as children understood that some of these people were important people and we would behave that was a good thing. And then sometimes it was more like, oh, this is a colleague and fellow agitator for conservation, and we might not behave quite as well. I think we did understand some of the differences. And as young adults, or certainly speaking for myself, you could look back and say, oh, you were out with Mr. Nixon. Oh, you were out with Mr. Carter. And so that would translate to us. But as kids with parents whom you love. And I was fortunate to be in a family where that was the case. You could see that they felt good about what they were doing. Love that. That's the inspiration that I'd like to put on my kids. One part in the interview I always like to include is the college portion of people's years, because I always find it's so interesting and fascinating how people choose the college they went to, what they think about in terms of major and what they would do after that, because it seems to really set them up for the defining decade, the 20s. And so I'm curious for you, given the upbringing and that conversation around conservation. But how did you choose the college you went to and why did you choose that? Oh, dear. This is going to make me look very, very different than other people. When I went to college, I was not very focused about what I wanted to do. So I went to a default college and then I dropped out and I went back for another quarter and then I dropped out. And then I went looking more seriously, realizing that I probably needed to actually graduate to do stuff in the world. So at that point, I went and visited a select group of colleges, and I picked one based on the beauty of a cemetery near where it was. So I don't know what that says, but I ended up graduated from Harvard, and the cemetery was the cemetery in Cambridge, not the big Mount Auburn one, but the small one. And there was something that was so evocative and different than the West Coast that I thought, yeah, I could learn a lot here. So I don't know that there was a tremendous amount of intentionality, except for I did come to the realization that graduating from college was going to be better for me than not graduating from college. Well, I love how you say that. And then you throw in Harvard in there. And most people would like the academic background and the prestige of Harvard would know for you at the cemetery. So I would love that. And so what was your major there? I did a double major, biology and geology. At the time, there was not a real focus at all on ecology or environmental sciences. And so that is what I did, put it together. And so what was the first job after college for you? 
The actual first job was I graduated in a mid-year, so I was not a summer grad. I was a beginning-of-the-year grad, and my first job was teaching cross-country skiing out of Aspen, Colorado, and working at a deli. But then my first quote-unquote real job was I had been angling to work for the United Nations Environment Program. And to work for the UN, generally, you have to be recommended by the country that you are from. So you go through a clearance process and you are recommended by them. And each country has a quota within the UN of people that it can have so that you don't have over-dominance of any particular country. And I had been determined to work for the United Nations Environment Program. I really wanted to work for them. And I kept writing them saying, I really want to work for you and not hearing back. So I determined that I would go there and show up, which is what I did. So I got myself a one-way ticket to Nairobi, Kenya, and went over and was fortunate enough to be there when they needed somebody who was a good, quick English writer, speaker, and could also speak a couple of other languages. So I got hired on as a contract worker, as what they call a report writer or rapporteur at their general assembly. And that then translated into about a decade of a career with the UN. So just to rewind a little bit, you were writing them and calling them and no response, but feeling good about that, you decided to book a one-way ticket to Kenya. Is there any other color behind that? I figured that if nothing else, I could have a pretty great adventure. This was one of those things where in the UN, I don't know if actually this is still the case. So this was simply my story at the time. You're divided into the general services or administrative staff and the professional staff. And the general services have a union and the professional do not. And I was offered a job in the general services, but I was a graduate from Harvard. So I was going to be a professional. So we were in a negotiation and I said, well, I'm going to go down to the coast. And when I come back, you can either give me a professional job or it's been a fabulous time. And when I came back, I think they ran the numbers and said, she'd be a hell of a lot cheaper as a professional level one, step one than she would be as a GSA. So we're going to offer her the professional job. So my grade was P1, step one. And as I later characterized that, that was to be called the P on and step on. It was a good lesson. Don't be too proud of yourself. And instead, look at what really is behind the off. However, I took it and I enjoyed it. And I became a rabble rouser that tried to start a staff union. But that was history. Amazing. And so you spent over 10 years there. What was your role primarily there? Well, I spent 10 years in the UN. I was in Kenya for four and a half of those years, but I was also based out of Uruguay and I was based out of France and then I was based out of London. So I had different postings in that time. I started out as what was called a fund program officer, which was doing project development and budgeting and then overseeing how those projects were implemented to see that we were staying on target. And so after such a long career with the UN, what was the catalyst to leave it and join another firm? Fundamentally, I was at kind of a watershed or tipping point. When you work internationally, at a certain point, it's really hard to go home. And at that juncture, my father had cancer and I wanted to be able to spend some time with him and with my mother. And little did I know that once I came home, he would live for another 25, 30 years. That was great. But I'd left when I was quite young and in that somewhat rebellious stage. And I wanted to be able to have that time with my parents. Wonderful. And so what was your role after the UN? 
I then became the head of a long-term ecological research organization, really with the emphasis of taking long-term data, which it's very funny that we call it long-term because it might be a 25 or 30-year data set. And of course, the life of the Earth is in billions of years, but even of life on Earth is in the many hundreds of millions of years. And so a long-term data set might not be all that long-term, but it's helpful in seeing how things change over time. And using that data, we were collecting this on birds and marine mammals, so the top of the food chain, and really seeing how the environment was changing. And my goal with that was really to take that kind of information into decision-making and planning so that we could better work with the ecosystems in which we operate. My work in the UN was very much about how can we work within the ecosystems that are present and leverage how they function best to also meet human needs, recognizing that people are part of that system. Whereas the American way in general had been, we are going to take that system and make it work to fit. And that does have some fairly significant negative consequences for the operation of the basic system. So working internationally and globally, it was a real eye-opener about how conservation can be active as opposed to passive. Because in the U.S., the definition of conservation was national parks, national forests, other parks or protected areas, or it was what you don't do. So as a conservationist or environmentalist, you work to pass laws to stop bad behavior, to constrain bad behavior, undesired behavior, or you said people really aren't part of this picture, so let's keep them out. And working globally, it was much more intrinsic that people are part of the picture, they are part of nature. How do we better adjust what we do so that the system itself that sustains us, we are sustaining? And I felt that long-term data was very important to apply to improve our management here. I love that. And as part of that process and trying to either educate or bring awareness to that, did you find that most people didn't know that taking the active approach was that involved and passive was what it was? It sounds like it's more of like an educational process for you in that approach as well. I certainly learned that in being overseas and working with economies and people that are much closer to the earth. As we know, the vast majority of Americans do not work directly in agriculture on the ground. They do not work directly in forest management on the ground. And so that kind of appreciation just isn't there as intrinsically. I have always found it to be, I don't know that this is a good or bad story for you, but early on in forming the Pacific Forest Trust, I was talking to a funder, and at a certain point he said, oh, I get it. You guys are somewhere between rape and chastity because rape being take everything you can from the land, make your money and go and chastity being lock it up and put it away. And the vast majority of people don't want to live on either one of those ends of the spectrum. They would rather be in between where things kind of work for everybody's benefit. And that was a real realization. Like, yeah, you're exactly right. It's interesting that you mentioned long term because I work in the investment world and long term is very flexible in terms of definition, depending on who you ask. And so if you ask a tech investor and technology, long-term is 
a year, two years. And the other 10 years is just so glacial and pace that we lose sight of what truly long-term is. And so I love how you anchored it with taking a step back. It's in the millions of years of not just 10, 20, 30 years or decades. I love that. And so can you tell me about the catalyst to start? You mentioned Pacific Forest Trust, but can you talk about the catalyst to starting that and founding it? You're the co-founder and president, but just to hear the genesis of it. Pacific Forest Trust was the brainchild of myself and Connie Best, the co-founder. And the genesis of it was really a chance meeting where we were looking at how do you sustain forests, or we shared a love of forests and looking at sustainability and how we can better apply what we know ecologically to how we manage financially. Connie Best came from the business world, so she had an immediate appreciation of that. Forests are very long-lived systems. You think about it, and here are beings that have been around sometimes for thousands of years, and they have been able to weather the stress of daily life for that time period. And they're just not amenable to the kinds of financial pressure and financial returns that people in the forest world have been seeking, because you're not going to compete with tech stocks. You just aren't. And the true value of wood is never really paid for. Being treated as a commodity, it's a wood is but one product of a forest. So looking at this from the point of view of how could we develop an approach to valuing forests and paying landowners for that full value that would be more commensurate with supporting those systems was a conversation that we had. I came in on the science and policy and management side, and she came in on the financial and land trust side knowing that. And so that just really clicked. And given that there was no other organization around that did that, we decided to found one. Incredible. Happy anniversary. That was nearly 30 years ago. Thank you. Have you read The Overstory? Yes. How do you feel about the book? I mean, just the idea of this love and commitment and connection to trees, but I would love to get your thoughts just on the book if you have any. Well, there is that intrinsic connection to trees and forests. I mean, we all feel it. You may not give it a name, but you walk in an old forest, not necessarily old growth, but an old forest, and you just relax. There's so much healing input that happens when you're in a forest. And yes, that is scientifically proven. We can measure it. Therefore, it must be true. But you also just experience it. And I think that the overstory did a fabulous job of conveying the emotion of that while not demonizing people who also are employed within an historic industry. I think one of the goals of the Pacific Forest Trust, frankly, was to reconcile that conflict. But just as a book, I do think it conveyed the passion that individual trees, whether it was the tree in the backyard, many of us have a beloved tree that just evokes so much for us to the majesty of forests and then to the sense of fragility that these extraordinary beings that have gone through so much, the fragility of human decision making. And given that people are moved by their sense of self-interest, that's a big motivator for people to do the kinds of work that we do. I think of our work as jujitsu, which is to take that human drive. We're a betting species, right? We love to gamble. And everybody needs to earn money. Everybody needs to earn a living. We can capture that drive, fulfill it by driving better forest management and conservation and helping save the world from climate change. That's good. 
I hate to summarize three decades of your work, but if you can just share the growth of Pacific Forest Trust. How did you start it? What were some of the early partners? What was the first decade like relative to this decade, the third decade? We started as an idea, as a concept. So many organizations start with money and connections. And we started with neither, but we started with a really good idea. So when we started, there was a lot of knocking on doors and people saying, oh, that's so interesting. What a good idea. Just like in starting any business, because running a nonprofit is running a business, you have to find those first people to invest. So we got a little bit of seed money from one foundation, and it was a challenge to get a little bit of seed money from another foundation. And we slowly grew that. It was super interesting just conceptually when I first began talking to people about, and this is in the mid-90s, talking to people about forests and global warming, and they're going, what? And then talking with folks about what we could do to capture that because older forests store a lot more carbon than younger forests. And if we could pay people for that incremental difference, they looked at us like, what planet are you from? You must be from San Francisco. Isn't that where the hate ashberry was? Another non-traditional timber product? So it was a lot of great idea, where's the reality in getting traction? And getting people to do conservation easements and recognizing that by conserving their lands, but continuing to own them, and by dedicating them to being managed for natural forest values, they would earn a lot more money than not that they could be paid dollar for dollar and more for conserving a well-managed forest and agreeing to manage it differently. It took a while for that to get traction on all sides of the coin. Because if you were in a government agency that funded conservation, well, you funded the kind of conservation that kept people out, or you funded the kind of conservation that simply stopped subdivision and didn't change how that land was to be managed for the future. So where we were was right in the middle of those things. We push and push, and then landowners started saying, yeah, I'll do that. And agencies started saying, yeah, that makes sense. And we were able to start to get a number of new policies put into place, which provided the funding, which provided the genesis, which provided the momentum. And so at a certain point, you get to a critical mass. Great. I want to rewind a little bit. You mentioned easement, and I learned so many things from you, and one being easement and just ownership, both private and public ownership of land, at least in the States. It was surprising to me just learning that statistic. I think it was something on the order of, was it 40 or 60% that was privately owned? 60% of forests in the United States are privately owned. Most people think of forests as being public, but the majority of them are actually private. 60% are privately owned. And you mentioned easement. Can you share with our listeners exactly what that is? I just hadn't heard that term before as it relates to land. And I don't think it's common knowledge of how it really works in terms of the economics. And so you'd mentioned how Pacific Forest Trust really tries to make it financially beneficial on both sides. But if you could walk through the easement process a little bit. Easements are a really interesting tool because they're a partial interest in land. When you own land, you fundamentally own The classic analogy is a bundle of sticks, and you can do things with those sticks. So one stick can be subdivision, one stick can be development, one stick can be timber harvest, one stick can be conversion to a vineyard. Some of those things are very compatible with having forest land and managing it as a natural forest for all of its values, not just for its timber or its fiber, but for its water, for its wildlife, for its climate benefits, and other things are not. 
So what a conservation easement allows you to do is take some or all of those individual sticks and pay for them in order for them not to be used. So you can take that stick that is about subdivision of property. is a larger piece of property, by and large, is much better for habitat than a smaller piece of property for the animals and insects that live there and the water that runs through it. You can take all or part of the ability to build them all. You can reduce the amount of timber that people take at any one time, so taking less than what is grown every year, and that allows you to grow an older forest while still harvesting it. And in fact, it allows you to have more timber on that property over time than if you took all the growth that happens every year. So what a conservation easement allows you to do is to take that portion of the stick that is incompatible with it being a well-managed natural forest and value that through an appraisal process and pay the landowner dollar for dollar the value that they're giving up. The interesting thing is that the value that they're giving up when you pay for it at that time gives you much more money up front for that. It makes liquid an otherwise illiquid asset. Because you can't go down to the bank and draw out some money based on land. You have to go through a loan process, et cetera, et cetera. It's not liquid. It's not like cash. What an easement does is make those values that are really public trust values liquid for the landowner. So it can be a very compelling conversation for a landowner that is looking both for financial return and loves their forest and wants to maintain it for the long term. Might be an industrial asset, or it might be a financial asset, or it might be a personal asset. It speaks to people on all of those levels. Of the privately owned land, how much do you think was passively managed versus actively managed? The smaller the piece of land, the less managed it is likely to be because of the expense of management versus the return. So in general, what is called the non-industrial or smaller landowners are less managed than the actively managed ones, which tend to be the more industrial or financially owned ones, what are called industrial forest landowners. That term comes from a time when many more mills were around, and hence it was an industrial landowner because it was feeding a mill. But typically, that size is 5,000 acres and above. So when you say passively versus actively, it would help to know more about what you mean by that, because the approach to conservation that we have is one of active conservation. There's a very small percentage of private forest land which is actually conserved under easement. So maybe you could tease that question apart a little bit because it's different in the financial world when you're thinking of active and passive. Maybe more on the perspective of what Pacific Forest Trust does with the active management and truly trying to enhance it versus leaving it and not doing anything. The idea that people just assume by not doing anything that is managing it, but the passive doesn't add much value. You have to start with the fact that a very, very small percentage of private forest land is actually conserved at all. So if you take oak woodlands out of the case in California, you're looking at less than 5% of the private forest land ownership in the state of California. I don't think we have those statistics nationally, but it would probably be proportional. Very, very small percentage of that is actually conserved. So you're taking a small slice of a very small slice. One thing I want to highlight and mention here is the beautiful documentary, Beyond the Trees, that I had the privilege of watching with you in San Francisco, and it was sponsored by Tom at Van Egg. 
And for me, it was the first time I've really seen a documentary like that. And it was similar to my experience reading The Overstory, where it had such a connection for me in the trees and it made me want to learn more. And so I remember with Beyond the Trees, it taught me a lot about just the U.S. land management and also just the economics behind it, which I just had no idea. But ultimately, it taught me how it was so critical to view the forest now and why it's so important to focus on. And so if you don't mind sharing how it came about this documentary, why did you create it and really share more with our listeners about the piece? Well, I'm going to take that as an incredible compliment. If Beyond the Trees evoked some of the same feelings as Overstory, that is a powerful endorsement. Thank you. So this film came about because the Vanek family wanted to tell the story of what Pacific Forest Trust has done with the Vanek forests. These are about 9,300 acres of forest land in California and Oregon that Pacific Forest Trust has conserved and manages for the past 20 plus years. And they felt that that was an important story to tell. So that is how this came to be. Plus, of course, the wonderful filmmakers that were involved with this from Imaginary Forces, who are great storytellers. So the film really came from the place of wanting to share with the public the extraordinary tool we have in addressing climate change in forests. To the degree that people think about forests in climate change, they think about tree planting, which is a lovely thing to do but it is not going to move the needle for us in the time that we need the needle moved for climate change. So what we wanted to do with this film was share the experience of what you can do in 20 years to help mitigate global warming and at the same time promote what we call adaptation, which is living well in a changing world, and how that also really is essential if we're to keep the amazing diversity of wildlife that we have, because forests are an absolute treasure house of biodiversity. And we have more endangered species in forests than any other type. And they are associated with older forests. And people can drive the restoration of these forests, restore those habitats and conserve them, produce more lumber net-net, more forest product in the commercial sense net-net, through this kind of approach. And we wanted to tell that story. And what is so wonderful, Yin, is to hear you say that that's the story you heard. Oh, absolutely. It was informative, but also inspiring to me. And when I think about, at least with my research on the investment side, there's so many companies now who have a focus on the environment and focus on climate change, and they have all the net zero targets. And so most of the companies that we speak to have that. What's interesting is the roadmap to get there. And I don't think we have the technologies in place to fully get there in 30 years, but it seems like a lot of companies will talk about our next seven to 10 year goal. So by 2030, what is the roadmap? And so much of that is reduction of things versus innovation and tech. And so what I found that resonated with me of your documentary, one of them is that the active forest management that you really lead, and it's an innovative model, I think it was something on the order of like 400,000 cars from the road equivalent was removed from the active management. I just thought that was super interesting. But can you share a little bit more about that in terms of what metrics do you measure? What metrics matter to you when you think about active forest management? So what we're looking to do is allow forests to do what they do naturally well. And that is by virtue of being, 
they absorb carbon dioxide and they store it in their bodies and in the soil. A lot of people think that soil drives forests, but actually forests drive soil. It's a really interesting thing. Richard Feynman, who's famous in the tech world, actually had it right when he said, trees grow from the air because what they absorb and the energy that they have, about 40 or 50% of that goes into the soil. And the soil gives back maybe 20% in terms of nutrition. So actually, you're, you're taking and going in. Net, net. The older a forest is, the more carbon that it has. It also, in general, is more resilient. And the more natural a forest it is, the more resilient it is, the healthier it is. And when you think about the kind of fires that we're having, or the droughts and the intense rain that we're having, you can think of those events as stress. So the more resilient your forest is, the better able it is to withstand stress. Very young forests, which is what we tend to grow for industry, and our purpose-grown trees, the younger they are, that's the quicker turn. So it's the industry's goal to, very logically, the quicker the turn, the higher the earn, right? So the focus has been on growing trees in shorter and shorter and shorter cycles. Every time you do that, you have a net loss of carbon. And in fact, the loss and degradation of forests is the second largest source of CO2 loss, of CO2 emissions. So if you can flip that on its head and instead focus your forestry on managing to rebuild that forest well, then you'll do a better job for the climate and you'll have more volume of forests from which to harvest. The difference there is the time value of money. It's what you talked about a moment ago, which is, can I even wait a year? And in this case, what we're talking about is staggering harvests so that we take less than growth. So it's a different definition of sustainability. A lot of people think about sustainability as just take everything you grow. But when you start with a really young forest, that means your forest will never appreciate. And so, for example, the Vanek Forest in Oregon, when we took over its management, it was basically under 20 years old. And our goal is to regrow it into the 80 and 100 and 200 year classes, but in a staggered way. We harvest every year. We take off a couple million board feet, but we're taking less than growth. So it's like having a bank account. And instead of withdrawing your monthly salary every month, that would be sustained yield, right? You're going to take 10% or 20% less than that. And that means you're going to start having a savings account where you're going to have investments that are yielding you more return over time. The approach here and how we approach it is to rebuild the base asset to what it can more naturally be. Just to give you a sense of what that means, let's use a really well-known species, which is redwoods. We all love redwoods, right? Magnificent big trees. When European settlers first came in and harvested, the average removal was over 250,000 board foot to the acre. So just call a board foot a dollar, right? $250,000 to the acre. Today, on intensively managed lands, you're lucky if you have 8,000 board foot to the acre. Now, there's a big difference here, obviously. So we've been managing redwood lands for the Vanek Course Foundation that we can serve and manage. When we took over the management, we had about under 20,000 board foot to the acre call it dollars. We're now on average over 60, and we've been removing over a million board foot a year from those forests. So that's a, and 
you can walk in them today and you get a pretty darn good feeling walking through it. It's not like walking through a clear cut, I'll tell you that. But it's a pretty simple philosophy, frankly. And if you're an investor, I think it's a strategy that any investor will get. I loved in the documentary, it showed that, I believe it was a 10-year time frame, but it showed what you were talking about in terms of allowing that long-term compounding, that magic of compounding to go. What I don't fully understand is it sounds intuitive. I love the analogy you use from like a checking account perspective where you don't withdraw your full balance and you just allow for withdrawal of 10, 20, whatever percent, but smaller than what you have. That sounds intuitive, whether public or private. Why wouldn't landowners see that, accept it and say, obviously, yes, long-term, this is good for us. Short-term, this is good for us. Win-win, no-brainer, let's do that and just take off a smaller portion. Is it awareness? Is it education? I think it is definitely that, which is a key reason for Beyond the Trees as a documentary is to help people see that. That is key. The other thing that I think is operational is culture. This is the way we've always done things. So this is the way we're doing things. Another issue is having sufficient investment on the conservation side. So if you think about it, forests have an enormous number of public benefits, clean air, clean water, biodiversity, climate benefits. But you can't just expect landowners to do that for free. So it's really a cost share public-private partnership that is what the purchase of conservation easements. They have a unique tax deductibility, which is unlike any other gift. Quite interesting, also from a financial perspective. So you can work with this as a public-private partnership, driving investment into forest conservation and stewardship, the same way we are seeking to drive in public investment into private enterprise in energy generation, transportation, manufacturing, for climate benefits. We know we need to do that. People have not thought about that the same way with forests and land. And that is very new for most people. So I think it is a combination of factors and Beyond the Trees is really designed to open that conversation up. I love that. Well, it's award-winning for a reason. And I certainly like that message. And it's interesting because I, I believe in the beginning, it mentioned the history of the Van Eck Forest and Jan Van Eck and how he loved both finance and forests. And to your point, it's not mutually exclusive. It can be combined in a really beautiful way. Maybe two more questions, because I could ask you so many more, like hours and hours of questions about this, but I also want to get to the questions I ask everybody on the show. But maybe two questions. One is, what do you think is the most misunderstood area of forest conservation? I think the most misunderstood area is, number one, that conservation should be the foundation of management. Conservation is not about saying no, it's about saying yes. That's the most misunderstood, I think. The second is that people often talk about forestry when what they mean is fiber harvest or timber harvest. Forests are much more than just the trees. That's why we call our film Beyond the Trees. I love it. And it really did. It showcased not only the ecological impact, but also the people and the network that really support that. And I thought that was really beautiful. Last question, what can people do now to help, whether it's awareness, education, content to consume, but what can people do now to help with this? There are three things I would suggest. One is if you care about climate and you recognize the role that public policy can play, urge your policy leaders to include investments in forests as a critical climate solution, as well as being absolutely fundamental for our water, because we haven't even talked about watersheds. Maybe we'll do another show about water and forests. Two, they can get involved locally 
by restoring native species into the urban landscapes so that there is a pathway, shall we say, for wildlife, even insects, to safely go from urban areas to rural and wild areas. Three is that if they like the work of groups like ours, they can support groups like ours in order to drive those kinds of changes. Love it, love it, love it, love it. I'd say most of my listeners are people either I know or in the industry, although at this point, there's many more listeners after five years that I started the show. I can see why. Thank you. For those listening who have no idea, they've kept their head down and they don't have a love or passion or connection as you do. The question would be like, who cares? Worst case scenario, like whatever. And they just don't even bother. I'm sure you face a lot of that. We live in this ecosystem, both in California and the Bay Area and also in the world that you thrive in. But for those who are not in the area, who just don't have any mind share towards this, why does it matter? I'd have to say if anybody likes to breathe clean air, <laughs> that's a good laugh. And you live in the Midwest. Oh, my goodness. Seeing the smoke in the air, you go, what is this from? Well, it's from the fact that we need to be managing our forests differently, because when we do, we're not going to have these massive smoke events. If you lived in New York a couple of weeks ago, you'd go, yeah. There's something to be aware of. If you live in Texas and you are going through 117 degree heat and humidity that is well off the charts, you are going to care about this. If you drink water, most of us do, and you like to be able to get it from the tap and you want it to be of a high quality, you care about this. If you happen to like birds, you just love to hear birdsong in the morning, you care about this. So I think what's fundamental is that whether you live in a forest or whether you recreate in a forest or whether you have no idea that there are forests, your life depends on how well those forests function to help us have clean air, clean water, a climate that is livable. So it's very basic. It's also very far from most people's minds. And that's why having a conversation with you makes such a big difference because you help reach people who otherwise wouldn't know it. I think that that's a huge part of what we need to do in our lives that are so busy for so many people that have so many deadlines, so many distractions. I would urge them to take just a moment every day to go and sit under a beloved tree or to find a tree to love. Well, I will make sure to link Beyond the Trees, the documentary to the show notes so people could find out more. And if you don't mind, I'd love to transition to the questions I ask everybody because I can so much more about Pacific Forest Trust. Starting with who or what inspires you? Oh, gosh. Well, I would have to say my parents inspired me. There's no question. I was very lucky with that. They gave me an opportunity to experience the world in a way that has clearly had an impression on me. One of the people that you see in the film, Jerry Franklin, is a very inspirational, motivational guy for that. And there have been a lot of mentors that I've had along the way that have opened my eyes to new ways of doing things. So I don't know how long of a show we want to make this, but why don't I stop with those? What are you most proud of so far? Getting past the null zone. <laughs> I don't know if you know that concept, but it's a concept in restaurants. If you make it past the null zone, you'll make it. What is it? It was something for restaurants. If you could make it past, or it's like a child historically. If you lived to five, you would live. If you didn't make it to five, well, of course you wouldn't. But if you made it to five, you were going to live to 70 or 80 or whatever. I am most proud of when I see my son smile. Absolutely. I love that. As a mom of two boys, I can relate. What does success mean for you? 
They're very different kinds of success. I think success for me personally is translated into a sense of peace, just feeling centered and feeling good about what I can accomplish. That's a personal success at whatever level. And success in work means that what we do is widely accepted, widely imitated and adopted. It's not so much that we ourselves necessarily are the biggest and the best because we aren't, but I can say that we've had extraordinarily wide adoption of our concepts in many ways. And that is success to have what you're doing become just the standard. Love it. Given the name of the show, it's funny, a friend of mine who's the CIO of a foundation, he listens to every episode. And I thank you for that, Brian. And he mentions, yeah, and this is a show about profiles and journey stories. And it's not necessarily about failure. So despite the name, because I just want more failure. And I've always loved the show that really shows the arc of someone's journey. And for you, it's such a passion for conservation, which I absolutely adore. We haven't talked about failure yet for you specifically or deliberately. So if you can share your most transformative struggle or failure, and I used to ask this specifically, what is your biggest failure? And over time, it's evolved to be, not surprisingly, your biggest struggle or failure that's transformed into a growth moment or a big growth moment that's really been transformative for you. And so I'd love to hear from you that part of it, just given the namesake of the show. So when I first went overseas and was living in Kenya, I had the ambition to either become a doctor or a lawyer in my grown-up life. And I was a rock climber. And so I was out rock climbing on a weekend with my boyfriend at the time, and I was leading the climb. And I was about 60 feet up and I fell and I hit the ground. I was fairly injured. So the failure was I had misjudged the climb. The success was he wasn't following and so he didn't get hurt. But really what it was, was an opportunity to go, is this the life that I want? Is this dream of going back to the States and going to grad school and becoming a professional in that sense, really where I want to be headed? And I realized it wasn't. So looking back on it, probably I wasn't paying attention. I was climbing, didn't take into account the fact that it had rained, rock would be slick. There were various other things at play, but the lesson was to pay attention to where you are. And if that means having to step back and reassess, kind of a more jarring way to step back and reassess, I would not recommend this for anybody. But I think the big lesson was to listen and pay attention. And that kind of redirected what I did. That's incredible. And so from that moment, from that fall, that's when you pivoted or transitioned to conservation work? I mean, I was already in that to some degree internationally. But what it said was, I can do more by focusing on where I am and this vein of work that I'm in than by stepping out and going back and getting a law degree or a medical degree. I was very focused on becoming a doctor at the time. And that would have been a very different career trajectory than what I have had. Incredible. Well, we talked about the Oprah story in many ways, but the definition technically is that the upper layer of the foliage, that's like a canopy and in many ways protection. So you are providing that coverage in many ways, the forest and healing. Two more questions. If you could speak to Lori right after college, what would you tell her? I would say two things. One is, no matter how crazy the idea is, go ahead and follow it. It's the time to do it, for sure. And the second is something that I learned from a wonderful woman that I worked with in the UN. I was a very serious young person, and I was going to change the world. So I worked very hard. 
this was my rock climbing partner. And at one point she turned to me and said in French, les cimetières sont remplis de gens indispensables, which is to say that cemeteries are full of indispensable people. The takeaway of that is enjoy your life and to build upon joy. That is the one thing that I would say is, you know, whatever the crazy idea is, follow it and enjoy it. My key takeaway from this is just paying attention to where you are and being present. It's the simple things to say, but really so hard to execute. So I love that reminder. Very last question. What's next for Lori Weyburn? Take my own advice. What that means is to make sure that you inject joy in your life and to focus on what really matters and not get all of us in work, get eaten up by little things. doesn't matter how talented you are, what position you are in any organization at any level, you tend to allow yourself to get eaten up by little things all the time. So what's next for me? That's a question that I'm looking at answering, but I do think that a key part of it is to help drive this kind of solution to the next level. So at a professional level, I really want to ensure that people recognize the opportunity that they have with forests and that they really need to seize that opportunity. That's a big driver for me. I look at the next 20 years and it's a frightening 20 years. So whatever we can do to make a positive difference in that, you have two little boys. I have a boy who's not a boy. He's a young man, 21. In this time that I have on earth, I'd like to do what I can to make sure that he has a better world. So what does that mean precisely, Yen? I don't know exactly, but I do think that we can make that difference and I'd like to be part of it. You are a part of it and I'm looking forward to hearing more about both Pacific Forest Threats and also future documentaries and content you'll create. And we mentioned water a little bit, but I'm looking forward to the next one that hopefully you'll be involved with. Lori, thank you so much. I had a blast in this conversation and learned so much. It is mutual. And thanks for having me on the show. I'll look forward to seeing you again. Take care. Thank you, Lori.